everybody. This is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media, and I'm your host here on Left, Right, and Center. This is the show where we take on all the political issues, even the complicated ones that might be dividing your own family these days. The next time you see a video of a horrific, violent act by a police officer or read of a shocking scandal in law enforcement, you may find yourself asking how this keeps happening despite repeated cycles of protest and promises of change. So how does abuse by law enforcement keep happening in our country? Well, our first guest today has an opinion about that. Christy Lopez wrote the words I read there at the top in a recent column for the L.A. Times. She's a law professor at Georgetown University, also served in the Justice Department under President Obama, leading civil rights investigations of police departments. In her column, Professor Lopez wrote that we have a lot to learn from a recent departure in the Biden administration. A few weeks ago, U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Chris Magnus stepped down after just a year on the job. Magnus was known as a reformer and had been brought in by the Biden administration to address corruption, racism, violence amongst Border Patrol agents. More than a dozen House Republicans wrote the White House asking for Magnus to go, and he stepped down, citing differences with leadership at Homeland Security. Um, Christy Lopez, thanks for being here. Thanks for the column, and uh, I'm looking forward to chatting. Glad to be here, David. So what what are the broader implications of, of this single departure at CPB? Why, why, why did you focus an entire column on this? Yeah, I think there are broader implications for uh, CBP and Border Patrol in particular. But I wrote the column really because of how illustrative this dynamic, uh, this, this firing was for why police reform doesn't take hold uh, in, in lots of types of law enforcement agencies, whether city um, or state. So I think that the what I saw happen at Border Patrol, I have seen happen for decades in uh, other jurisdictions as I've been doing reform work across the country. And uh, the problem tends to be that uh, there is an incident or a series of incidents and uh, political leadership understands that things need to change. So they bring in someone who can reform. Um, but then they discover uh, that it's really hard to reform uh agency is really hard to change culture, and it becomes easier just to uh, capitulate uh, and not follow through on those reforms. And, and this was such a clear example of that, um, that I wanted to illustrate it so that we can all, you know, sort of have a deeper understanding that it's not just policing that needs to change if we want police reform, it's uh, political leadership and what they're willing to fight for. So what what exactly was Magnus trying to do in terms of reforming CBP um, that you think, you know, irked Republicans, irked people in the agency and and forced Biden to make this move? My understanding is that he, he was trying to create a culture of accountability and he was trying to shift incentives so that officers who are working hard um, and they're really difficult conditions that CBP officers work under, um, that they are supported and uh, that they are uh, allowed, incentivized to do good work and that policies are changed uh, and that incentives are changed so that when officers behave unaccountably, they are detected and they are, um, they are disciplined. Uh, and so that kind of, to shift that culture from one of a lack of accountability, of sort of doing what you want to one of accountability and really sticking with the, the authentic CBP mission, which should be protecting borders and um, protecting people. And you're drawing sort of broader conclusions here, saying that it's not just someone like President Biden, it's it's mayors, it's governors all around the country, that the culture in law enforcement agencies is never going to change if you don't allow a reformer like Magnus to 
to basically have some free reign to, to do what he or, or she thinks needs to be done. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, that, that, you know, the political leadership, whether it's a mayor, whether it's a governor, uh, whether it's the president, whether it's a cabinet member, has to support the person that they've put in place to bring about reform. They have to understand that uh, that person is going to come up against a lot of resistance and they have to be willing to side with that person and support that person in those difficult moments. Otherwise, you know, what we what we saw happen with Chris Magnus um, at, at DHS will, will keep happening. And I've seen it happen in, uh, again, cities large and small uh, all across the country. But Republicans in Congress, I mean, cited these reports that, that Magnus was, was disengaged, even reports that he had slept through meetings. I mean, aren't those valid complaints that have nothing to do with these larger questions of reform that, that you're asking? It would be, it is a valid uh, concern if he was unengaged. I think the, the explanation of why Magnus uh, may have fallen asleep uh, during a meeting was that he um, had, was taking a new medication for his uh, MS and he had to adjust to that. Um, and, you know, it's, so I, I don't, I don't find those credible, given that there's no real, um, there wasn't really any underlying data or, or, you know, showing about what, what was he doing that was not engaged? It seems that the problem was actually that he was too engaged. They specifically explicitly stated that he was too concerned about reform. And that takes the, um, that takes the, that manifests itself as trying to change policies, trying to introduce new training, trying to ensure people are uh, held accountable, that investigations of misconduct are carried out, that, you know, that speaks to someone who's actually quite highly engaged with trying to create an accountable agency, which, again, this, you know, CBP has been known, uh, has been called to the carpet over decades by GAO, by, you know, lots of different um, entities as, as really in need of this kind of reform. I mean, we have to talk about the, the larger kind of cultural and political context here. I mean, you have a, a lot of concerns about border security, Republicans who are saying that the, the border is just not safe and and the Biden administration needs to clamp down and do more. I mean, you have a lot of the the criticism of the agency, as you say, border patrol agents, I mean, you know, abusing migrants at at the border. I mean, to to put it bluntly. I I guess is is there an argument that this is just a a really hard, larger problem to solve? And maybe finding the right person is in this political context and, and in this whole cultural context, just a very hard thing to do. And Biden has decided like he just wants someone else in there. I think um, that that's possible. But I think if that's the case, that uh, there's a decision that you need a different type of person in there, then it's buying into uh, a false narrative that is why we have these continuing problems with police misconduct, which is that there's a tension between effective law enforcement and law enforcement that that respects people's rights, and we know that that's not the case. There's, you know, we don't have time here to go into all the all the research and evidence that supports the idea that you really need uh, law enforcement to uh, protect people's rights and to respect the rule of law in order to be effective. And so that's, I think, that's the mistake that political leadership sometimes makes, and it may be the mistake that they made here. It's, and again, this is a way in that this has implications for other types of law enforcement as well. Um, you know, whether it's gun violence or border or border safety, these are big problems that we as the public tend to expect the law enforcement officers to fix, even though there are, there are of course, broad policy problems that require a much broader uh, set of actors to fix. I want to bring in our left, right and center 
panel. We have Moa Lathy on the left. He's executive director at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service, was communications director at the Democratic National Committee and also advised Hillary Clinton. And we have Sarah Isker back on the right, staff writer at The Dispatch, a lawyer and was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Um, Sarah, let me let me just ask you here. What what do you think motivated Republicans in the House and others who were complaining about, you know, this leader at, at CBP? I mean, unquestionably, it's the humanitarian crisis at the border. And I'm not going to pretend for a second that Republicans haven't used that to their political advantage. Of course they have. Um, but there is a crisis at the border. And so when we talk about the biggest scandal at CBP in the Biden administration, it's the, you know, uh, CBP officers on horseback supposedly whipping Haitian migrants. And we now have the 500 page report on that. And it's just not accurate. None of the initial stuff was accurate. There was no whipping. Um, And in fact, you know, it was an incredibly chaotic day. 15,000 Haitian migrants crossed the Rio Grande on that one day in September. CBP officers were told by their supervisors to go help with uh, the state and local law enforcement folks trying to, again, deal with the humanitarian side of this. It was a hot day. It was sunny. Um, These people were going back and forth over the uh, through the river rather which is incredibly but still, it dangerous it looked like whipping to me in the images i saw i mean that, that it looked, looked like I mean, it just but it an, wasn't abusive... and that should matter to people it, they weren't whipping anyone they never touched anyone and they never importantly the report found they never prevented anyone from crossing into the united states or from seeking asylum and so all of that vilification of cbp that happened including biden and others from the white house just was false Um, Now, the report, as Christy pointed out, also found that they used unnecessary force by having the horses there near children and that they violated various CBP policies, although not those individual officers, as it turns out, because they were told to go there by their supervisors. But sort of the relationship between uh, CBP and uh, the state, the Texas State Department of Safety and stuff. And and that's why the report is 500 plus pages. Um, But I, I think this gets to a broader point on the Ferguson effect, but I want to define that term differently for those who have heard it. This was Jim Comey who coined that term after the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, um, in which he said that by focusing so much condemnation and um, scrutiny on individual officers, what you do is disincentivize them from getting out of their cars. And then crime goes up and then people call for more police presence, more aggressive policing. And so you end up in this cycle. Uh, But there's another part to the Ferguson effect that's worth talking about. There was a DOJ investigation after Ferguson, of course, and there were two reports. And all I ever hear from each side of this debate is citing one of those reports. So one of the reports said that it was a good shooting, meaning that the police did not involve in any misconduct. There was no hands up, don't shoot moment. Um, that unfortunately, uh, the police officer who shot Michael Brown that day did so with you know all of the legally necessary cause to do so. But there was another report that said that that police force was also using that community as a piggy bank, basically, as a revenue generating source. And so the you know community policing that we know works well had totally fallen apart in that area. Fast forward now, um, seven years later, you have rising crime in all these places. And a lot of those police uh, departments are pointing back and saying, yes, it's because we're out there making split second decisions that now are getting second guessed by the Department of Justice. 
Um, and so we're not going to make those split second decisions. And as violent crime goes up, both in, in urban places and now in rural communities as well, um, you've got to come up with reforms that that deal with all of this. You need to reform the police departments or the you know bad actors in those departments while at the same time not sacrificing public safety. And just to circle back to the border, when we apply that to the border, you cannot reform CBP while having every month over month increasing record numbers of people illegally crossing the border. Um, you know, fiscal year last year, we're close to 3 million people. Christy, do you feel like Sarah's making your same argument away? Reform is necessary and you need a bold reformer to do it? In, in a way, uh, and I, I led the the investigation of Ferguson and, and uh, was the primary author of that second report that Sarah talks about. So I'm, I'm very well aware of it. I was actually going to compare the two because the argument that the there was no whipping reminds me a lot of the argument, well, his hands weren't up, therefore there's nothing wrong in Ferguson. And of course, we know that's not the case. And it is absolutely um, true um, that reform is linked to effectiveness. But I think what Sarah's saying, you know, that you cannot reform CBP while there's, you know, so many people coming over the border kind of buys into this idea that it's the job of the CBP officer, you know, to uh, keep that from happening. And again, that is a that is a policy problem. That is a congressional problem. And when you put the weight of that, all these people are streaming over and it's your fault. That is actually part of the problem. Part of the reason I think we have officers who feel so demoralized and who buy into this idea that they have to they are OK. They are they are justified in violating people's rights to keep this this mass of people from coming over the border. And in fact, that's not on them. Part, you know, just as with policing, police can do with municipal policing. There is some work that police can do to prevent gun violence, but it's a very small portion of gun violence is actually responsive to whatever police do. So much more of it's responsive to all sorts of other things from employment to school to gun control laws, right? So it's it's the same exact idea. We're placing all of this on the backs of the individuals who are on the front lines, and that encourages them to violate people's rights. It lets them, it makes them think that they are expected to violate people's rights. And so I think it's really important to send someone into these, in these sorts of situations to make it clear, the message that no, we can do our jobs without violating people's rights. And that's what Chris Magnus has been so good at, was so good at historically. Mo, let me bring you in here. What, what, what do you make of Biden letting Magnus go? I mean, letting the, the, the leader of an agency that desperately needs reform. I don't think anyone disagrees with that at a moment when we have all this conversation about border security. What motivated this? Yeah, look, I, I, I don't know what motivated this specific uh, case. And, and let me preface what I'm about to say with, I am not a lawyer. Right? I'm not an expert on uh, policing. I'm a political hack, which I think makes gives me the right perspective to participate in this conversation because I do think political hackery is what's getting in the way of real reform. Living in this sort of political instant gratification era and reform is messy and reform is painstaking and reform can be slow and real reform takes place out of the public eye which is not well-suited for this political era that we are living in. And so you've got people on one side of this argument who are saying, and I'm, I'm speaking more broadly, I'm not talking about CPB, I'm talking about more broadly, you know, on one side of this who are saying crime is, is, is on the rise, it is running amok, and we need the police to crack down on it. And so any effort to reform is seen as, as being more focused on uh, attacking police than attacking crime. 
And you've got the other side who says the police for uh, the uh, our police forces, our law enforcement agencies are doing heinous things and they are not being held accountable and so we should defund them. Which then of course, you know, creates a whole different set of arguments. Those are the two loud extremes that are getting the most attention in this debate and creating the most political pressure. That is not where a majority of the country is. The majority of the country says, we need strong law enforcement, we need to crack down on crime, we need to hold our law enforcement agencies accountable, and in order to do that, we need reform. But like so many other things in our politics today, so many other things in our national discourse, that's not what gets the attention. What gets the attention are those who are making the most noise in order to get score political points. And unfortunately, this is an incredibly important issue that's caught up in it. And and I think we're, we're seeing the, the negative effects of it. Well, uh, Christy Lopez, thank you for the column and thank you maybe for for beginning to address the problem that, that Mo is bringing up in terms of what we should be focusing on. She's a Washington Post contributing columnist, wrote this column for the LA Times, also a professor from practice at the Georgetown University Law Center. Um, Christy Lopez, thanks so much. Thanks, you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, I'm going to be back with Mo Alethi and Sarah Isger. We're going to talk about rising anti-Semitism in the United States. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. We're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green, the co-founder of Fearless Media. On the left, we have Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. And on the right, Sarah Isger, who's a lawyer, a staff writer at The Dispatch, and former spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. The playwright Tom Stoppard recently described the state of anti-Semitism in the world by saying, it stays silent and mostly invisible until you poke it with a stick. Well, this concern is being expressed by many people, especially in the wake of a dinner that former President Trump recently had with the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, now Ye, and also with white supremacist and Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes. Sadly, anti-Semitic comments are being expressed more widely by people like Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano of Pennsylvania. He used veiled anti-Semitic language against his opponent, Josh Shapiro. He promoted Christian power and has been associated with far-right groups. Also, Brooklyn Nets basketball star Kyrie Irving posted an anti-Semitic film. And hate has just been rampant online on platforms like Twitter, where violent threats and harassment are on the rise. Um... Mo, let me start with you. I mean, do you essentially agree with Tom Stoppard's comment that anti-Semitism is always present in our world, lying under the surface until something reignites it? Uh, yeah, I don't think it gets reborn in a few years. I think it is there. I think it is uh, has never gone away. I think it is bursting onto the scene in ways... Uh, that we haven't seen in a in, in a very very long time, in large part because the tools are more sophisticated for it to get out there, because uh, of the sort of digital social media dark web world that we live in. While people could, they were quiet about it. 
they they felt it and they were quiet about it. It wasn't they didn't necessarily know where others who shared their hate were. But now it's easy to find them. And so they're building a bigger community that is better digitally connected. And so it's gone from, I think, just flaring up every now and then to just being kind of like on a steady burn, a steady increase, a steady rise. It's incredibly dangerous and and permeating sort of all of our discourse these days. I mean, I, I find myself wanting so desperately to like blame President Trump for this, for opening the floodgates to hate and for allowing people to come, you know, from from hiding. Um, but I just, you know, I've been, I've been reading about how rampant this has become. There, there's a book, Anti-Semitism on Social Media. They analyzed TikTok content between February and May of 2020 and 2021, 41% increase in anti-Semitic posts, almost a thousand percent increase in anti-Semitic comments. Um, I mean, I mean, Sarah, how much can we look at people like Donald Trump for giving license for haters? And how much of this is just much, much deeper and and something horrifying happening in our society? I don't, I don't want to excuse anything that Donald Trump has done on this, obviously, but I don't see how anything Donald Trump has said explains why we see so much anti-Semitism um, in higher education, at the universities, on the left, um, within some of these other anti-racist movements, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. And um, I I think part of that on the left is driven by this intersectionality idea um, that is has to be kind of inherent, which is that my pain has to trump your pain in order to validate me and so that I sort of win this um, victim race that's horrible. It's bad for our culture. It's bad for everyone involved. And so then you have this like race and this is picking out a very, very small and specific example, but I think it's meaningful. This was the Yale Law Review um, had a DEI trainer come in who was asked, you know, you've talked about pretty privilege and fat phobia on campus, but you haven't talked about anti-Semitism. And her response was basically that she'd already talked about anti-Blackness and some Black people are Jewish, and that um, the statistics that show that Jews are the most frequent targets of hate crimes by population um, was compiled by people with an agenda, quote unquote. And of course, Stanford is being sued by two professors there because they were forced to join a white identity group and told that their Jewish identity and culture um, and the anti-Semitism they'd experienced was meaningless, uh, and that in fact, when there was then, you know, a, a hate crime on campus um, where swastikas were shown during a student election, that that wasn't going to be talked about. That they would only talk about the anti-black uh, things that were shown in that Zoom bombing of the student election, not the swastikas. And so, I, look, it's a huge problem. It's always been a huge problem. I mean, we can go back two thousand years. We can go back six thousand years. Whatever you want. And it's been there to Tom Stoppard's point. But I think arguing that this is just a problem on the right misses anti-Semitism as a whole. You know, I, I just think about you talking about sort of comparing pain. Um, and LeBron James, the L.A. Lakers star, came out uh, and and criticized the media 
saying, why did you ask me about Kyrie Irving, who's, who's the Brooklyn Nets player who promoted the anti-Semitic film, but you're not asking me about Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, who was seen, a, the Washington Post had published a photo of him from when he stood with other young white students um, decades ago in Arkansas at a high school that, I mean, he was with a, a group of white students who were blocking black students from desegregating the school. And I, I just, I had all these reactions to that because, it, you know, part of me was like, okay, you you were asked about Kyrie Irving because you play basketball and like, that's your league. Um, but, but I also, I don't know, like, I think his point was, was valid. I mean, you know, Jerry Jones is out there. It, but can't both be bad? Can, they both can be bad. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I, unfortunately, I think what we see is that it's weaponized instead. Because this is bad, yours can't be as bad. And that's what we saw at Stanford. That's what we saw at Yale. That um, because we are focusing on, you know, anti-Black racism right now, we're not going to acknowledge other types of hate crimes. And to do so is a form of white supremacy, which is Stupid, frankly. I think Sarah and I agree on most of this, but I do have to say, like, and I don't think what you're saying, Sarah, is that this victimization politics is limited to the left because that that would be a laughable comment to make. I think truly laughable. Yes, you see a lot of victimization politics happening on the right, but on the left, it's based on race, and it is on the on the right in a lot of ways too. But but we're but what we're doing now is we're falling into the trap and like the point you just made that both can be bad is exactly the right point, right? The fact that we, that it's not a race thing, it's not it's a tribal thing. We are all whether we're on the right, whether we're on the left, right? We, we're falling into this trap as a society that my pain, my community's pain, um, can't be recognized. If someone else's is. And that's just wrong. Anti-Semitism is real. That's what this conversation started as. And we saw just here in the last few minutes how easy it is to get pulled away from that into other conversations. Anti-Semitism is real. It's there. It's not going away. It's getting more potent because because anti-Semites are getting more connected. They're able to find one another easier, right? They're finding one another easier. Donald Trump may have given a big megaphone to it, but the megaphone was already there. The I, I, I hate the image of him sitting down with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes and, and the signal that that sends. But the reality is they were organizing and finding each other and growing bigger as a community before Donald Trump became president. And that's what we need to focus on. We need to focus on how do we root it out? How do we counter it? How do we, in the wild, wild west of the digital that we live in and where this stuff can spread like wildfire, we're entering into a a whole new era of of arguments over free speech online and Elon Musk letting a lot of people back onto Twitter who share these views and spread these views— how do we counter it? And I don't hear people talking about that. I agree with both of you that 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 we can, that it is so easy to fall into traps. But I, I just I don't want to lose sight of what motivated 
LeBron James to say that, which is a fear of, you know, he, other athletes, other people in this country fighting and fighting so hard (laughs) against rampant racism and discrimination Mm -hmm. and feeling like we can't take our eyes off the the ball in in mm-hmm. the wake of George Floyd and and where wh- whatever progress we have made it's like this could become something that takes energy away from that and the, that's the, the, that's the a sad fear. thing the sad reality is we have multiple balls that we have to keep our eye on it's not a matter of taking our eye off the ball we we are living in an era right now where we have too many balls that we have to keep our eyes on it and that is a sad sad commentary on where we're at but we can't take our eyes off of any of these balls i agree with that um, and, and I think, as I said, it's just getting more and more complicated because the guardrails of polite society, the guardrails of of political leaders who would push back on this stuff, those guardrails are getting looser. Well, what you have is you have like interviews like Alex Jones and, and Kanye West getting a lot of attention, which which seems like it really takes us away from actually coming together and finding solutions to to this kind of hate. Yeah, I feel like especially Hitler is going to be a new meme. Kanye praising Hitler in this interview. Yeah. <laughs> uh, saying that Hitler did some really good things and we should be uh, more familiar with those. So what is the solution? Like, are, are are there political leaders, are there people in the Justice Department who are focused enough as a government and as a country to combat, to police hate? Or is this something that... that the White House, that lawmakers need to to basically confront in a different way right now? I do think this is a cultural problem more than it's a legal problem. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do things legally. Of course we should. Uh, we have hate crime laws in this country. But I think we've also seen the political weaponization of hate crimes. What do you mean? Um, to use a, a horribly tragic event, but the Q nightclub shooting in Colorado, in the immediate aftermath of five people being killed and a dozen being shot and in the hospital, both sides jumped to their corners and went to the shelf and pulled out their talking points without any real facts of what was going on. Um, You know, that this was a hate crime driven by anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ rhetoric on the right. Um, And then when in the first filing, of course, um, the defense attorney says that the defendant will use they, them pronouns and identifies as non-binary, then the right jumps on and see, this was another hoax from the left. Hate crimes like this don't happen. Our rhetoric um, has no effect on cultural society. That stuff's incredible. Both. Both of those things are wildly unhelpful because it means we can't have a conversation about either one, about hate crimes that are staged, like we've seen that massively undermine people who report hate crimes, Um, But I feel like the LeBron James comment was was insidious in a way. I hear what you're saying, and I think it actually is strange that he wasn't asked about Jerry Jones for what it's worth. Like, that seems like you should ask about both. But LeBron James's point was different to me. Um, And it was, as you said, like, we've been fighting this fight and we don't want to take our eye off the ball, but... What about your brothers and sisters out there who are experiencing and are, you know, nearly three times more likely if you're a Jew in this country to be the victim of a hate crime? So there's a whole lot of people out there experiencing hate crimes and that pain. And I heard that comment to say, why in the world would you ask about that instead of this thing that I care about more? Mo, I'll give you the the final thought here. 
if anyone could answer your question, David, about what do we do, how do we tackle this, yeah, uh, the world would have been a much better place much, much sooner. But the reality is no, none of us know how. It is a cultural thing. It is a, you know, there are bad people in the world. How do we as a society function understanding that without lifting them up and giving them voice and amplifying their voices and giving them license? And I worry too much that the negative, the, the, the incentive structure right now that is making our politics more toxic is also coming into play here. There is an, an, a, a sick incentive structure that is algorithmically driven online, that is politically driven, that is um, driving some media ratings. There's a, there's a sick incentive structure right now that keeps this stuff and elevates it and glorifies isn't the right word, but puts too much of a spotlight on it, um, normalizes it a bit more. And we've got to figure out how to tackle that, right? I mean... I'm not disagreeing that there's political that 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 there's anti-Semitism across the ideological spectrum. But when you see some political leaders on the right actually playing footsie with it, or you know, as we saw with Donald Trump in Charlottesville, almost excusing it or or trying to find a counter a, a balance to it, right? They're both they're they're good people on both sides. I just think those are different types of anti-Semitism. And maybe we need to start dividing them up. The right-wing anti-Semitism is very different than the left-wing anti-Semitism. It's true. But my, but my point is, if we're incentivizing it, if we're, if we're empowering it through the voices of our political and media leaders, we're going to incentivize more people to participate in it. We're going to, to give permission for more people to participate in it. And, and that's a real, real scary place to be in. When the algorithms online incentivize and help connect these people better with one another, uh, I, I don't see how we tackle it effectively. And interestingly, a case at the Supreme Court that will address this exact issue of what responsibility the social media companies have, not just for their algorithms, um, or rather for their taking down content, but for the algorithms that promote that content. All right. Talking to Sarah Isger, Mo Alethi. Um, we'll be back to talk about the politics of soccer. Uh, you're listening to Left, Right and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, David Green. On the right, we have Sarah Isger, staff writer at The Dispatch, and on the left, Mo Alethi, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. And today, I get to use the World Cup as an excuse to uh, talk about one of my favorite topics on this program, and that is sports. Uh, in the World Cup, the United States beat Iran this week 1-0 to clinch their spot in the final 16 and move on from the group stage. This is exciting since the Americans did not even qualify for the last World Cup. This World Cup has certainly had 
its fair share of political strife and protests. Even before it started, the host country, Qatar, faced accusations of migrant worker abuses and discrimination against members of the LGBTQ community. Um, You know, I watched every second of that U.S.-Iran match, and I think what really stood out to me was the powerful images at the end, Uh, U.S. players embracing Iranian players who had tears after that loss, just thinking about the moment, thinking about these two countries and the tensions. Uh, How do you both reflect on on a moment like that? Can I tell you what a metaphor that was for me about where we are now in our history versus where we were 40 years ago? So you think in the middle of the Cold War, um, the U.S. playing the Russian hockey team, if you want, There's no hugging at the end of that. They're the bad guys. We're the good guys. Um, And they really were, by the way, the bad guys. Now it's so much more complicated. It's sadder in a way. I mean, to make the comparison, it would be more like the U.S. hockey team playing the Russian hockey team, but the hockey team's made up of people they just released from, you know, the gulags up there. And so you're like, ooh, these are kind of the good guys. I mean, I would argue a lot of those Russian hockey stars were the good guys and and those the U.S. players just didn't sort of approach it that way. Fair um, enough. Fair enough. But it's more about our, I guess, our cultural moment that we're in where we now recognize a lot more complication in all of this. Um, and I love tuning into the Olympics to root for the United States, sort of no matter what. I'll watch any sport if the United States is playing and try to kind of learn the rules. I became a curling fan. In fact, I'm wearing my curling hoodie right now. Oh, nice. Um, for USA Curling. For exactly that reason. More fun facts about Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very into our USA curling team, in case you didn't know that. But that's how I became a fan of it. And I just, I did. I felt like watching the World Cup, the Iranian team, you were rooting for in its own way because they were dissidents against their country's um, human rights abuses and authoritarian regime. But then the USA beat them. And I was like, yeah, but I also really like the USA winning. So <laughs> again, just for me, it was a larger metaphor. Yeah, no, I agree. Mo? Go USA. I'm all, I was all in. It was so exciting to see them win that game. It was so nice to see them take away a propaganda talking point from the Iranian government. Um, But, you know, to Sarah's point, I actually, I, I think the fact that this match took place against the backdrop of this massive uprising that we're all watching uh, in Iran or hearing about in Iran, at least, seeing snippets of on on social media, the fact that we watched the very brave stance that the Iranian players took earlier in the tournament, right, where they refused to sing the national anthem. Just incredible. Yeah. And their families are being threatened, we're now being told, which is why they sort of mumbled some of it. That, you know, That's right. Awful. They kind of moved their lips in the USA game um, in in part because of those threats. But, but you know, Sarah's right. Like, these aren't, the fact that we are seeing this kind of tension and strife and 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 bravery amongst the Iranian players, I think, um, was remarkable. So while I was rooting for Team USA, and anytime we can give a defeat to our national uh, adversaries and enemies, like I'm all for it. But um, so exciting to watch. Uh, as I said, that bravery and watch those Iranian players um, 
do the things that that they've done throughout this tournament and and could only wish for their safety. Only wish. All of that being said, David, I have to turn this around on you. Okay. That is a boring game, my friend. That no oh. no 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 no. Are you kidding? See, we're not going to get into a debate about soccer now. I I have I used to find soccer boring year, years ago, but I am all in. I was more tense and more engaged in that match than almost any Pittsburgh Steelers game. That I mean, which is which are important to me. Isn't it strange that we live in a country where we have an entire group of people we call soccer moms that every kid is basically presumed to have played soccer growing up in this country, and yet we live in a country that doesn't actually watch soccer for the most part. I mean, popularity is growing. Let's just say that. And I mean, the World <laughs> Cup is going to be mostly in the United States, the next one. So I, I think that that there's a different trajectory and it's going in a much more positive direction. But fair point. Um, and also this team, I mean, this young team. Uh, and I wanted to bring up one one member, Tyler Adams, the the young star and, and captain, because he got sort of brought into politics. He was accused by an Iranian reporter of, pronouncing Iran incorrectly. He handled that beautifully and apologized. The Iranian reporter also asked him what it's like to represent a country that discriminates against people of color. And Adam said there's discrimination everywhere and that the United States is making progress. And I guess I just wonder, I mean, to be in that position, like, is it fair to ask young athletes on a stage like this to speak on political or social issues for their countries. We just praised the Iranians for taking a stand against their government. Like, should Adams have said more? Should What, what is the expectation in a moment like that? Um, I think for most of them, they just want to play. Right? They just want to play their game. I don't know. I, some, I mean, it seems like increasingly they, they, they like making their points. I, I, look, I think for most of them, they just want to play. But I think a lot of them, particularly, particularly when they put on their national jersey, do suddenly find themselves in a position where they actually feel some responsibility to be able to speak for those who they represent. Yeah. I'm not saying that they all want to then go run for office. I'm not saying they all want to become political icons or martyrs. But but I do think you are seeing an increasing number of athletes who say, you know what? I, I came here to play a game, but now I've got this opportunity. I'll take it. I'll take it. And I think they're fine to. I think they're absolutely right to if 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 they're com- if they feel compelled to. Um, and sometimes it's done f- to to great effect, right? Look at the women's soccer team using their moment in the sun to shine a spotlight on inequities in gender and and how women athletes are being treated differently. Than Finally got pay equity far too late. But yeah, that fight was Finally inspiring. getting it, right? Had they not used that opportunity because they were wearing our jersey and, and, and everyone was paying attention to them, that equity still wouldn't be there. I guess it's like we talk about wanting to separate sports and politics, but this is this is one event where I've really enjoyed that intersection. And been curious about it. I think in particular, the Iranian-U.S. game brought out maybe the best in that intersection, if you will. Um, But I I would like the rest of the World Cup to just be me rooting against everyone else. (laughs) And rooting for the U.S.? Can we do that? Is that so hard? Yeah, just the U.S. I don't want to like the other teams. I don't want to harbor any positive sentiment toward them. Um, 
I just, I want pure, unadulterated USA, USA. Well, there's also this question about Qatar, the, the host country. I mean, there are questions about whether you have had an authoritarian nation grabbing control of, a, of an event to create a positive image for their country, despite allegations of human rights violations. But they didn't do it very well. If their goal was to, was to create a positive image, that may have backfired. Well, it's interesting because I, I think that more people are learning about the, the, the problems and, and the accusations about the, the Qatari government, which is which might be the, the best result to, to hold them accountable in the future. Also fascinating that this World Cup has potentially at least fed some of the protests in China right now. They refuse to show any of the crowd shots. If you were in China and you were watching the World Cup, all you see is like the field and the goals. They do not show people in the crowds because those people aren't wearing masks. And in China, they have told their population that the world is still in lockdown, that everyone is still in masks. Um, and so that very much undermined the propaganda from that government. Um, and so, yeah, the World Cup, just to your point, has maybe had quite positive effects to the extent that a sporting event like that can. Yeah, I mean, you also had the German team posing for a photo with their hands over their mouths as a rebuttal to to FIFA's refusing to let them wear pro-LGBTQ armbands. And, and that led U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken to say that no one on a football pitch should be forced to choose between supporting these values and playing for their team, which, which is one of the sort of lasting statements that, that I've taken from this World Cup so far. But I do... Sarah, I want you to leave this World Cup not finding soccer boring. That's my... I'm trying. It, it's not... It, a, a one nil. I mean, wait till we get to penalty kicks as we go forward because that is, there's, that is more tense than even like overtime NHL hockey playoffs. I, I, I mean... Oh, in fairness, I also dislike hockey. Okay. Well, <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> And we have gotten to the time where uh, we do our famed left, right, and center rants and raves featuring pet peeves and projects from across the political spectrum. So, Mo, you've set it up. Uh, give us your rant. I'm not a soccer guy. I typically am not a soccer guy. I will always watch the World Cup when the U.S. is playing because I just love watching Americans wearing the USA jersey doing their thing. So I'm paying attention to this. Soccer is not my game, but I'll tell you what really, really is getting to me right now. I cannot understand why they don't just stop the clock when they need to stop the play. So we don't have to guess at that 90-minute mark how much longer this thing is going to go on. The stoppage time is confusing. It's frustrating. I, I, maybe it's the instant gratification culture we live in, but when the game is supposed to be over, I want it to be over so I know whether to lick my wounds or start celebrating in the streets. No more stoppage time. Just stop the clock so we know. Okay, I'm going to change things up a little bit, Sarah. I'm going to come to you in one second. But Mo, I literally wrote notes of that very same rant, having no idea. I am so angry about that. Like, I have gotten more... Uh, no, I've gotten, I've gotten more and more into soccer in recent years. Like, I go to all the LAFC matches. They're the cooler MLS team in, in LA, my hometown. Um... And I've loved it. I'm getting into the sport like big time, but it's it's never clear when the match is done. And 
And I, you- I was at a bar last night. I didn't know what I was going to rant about, but this is what the conversation at the bar turned into. And it's like, nobody likes no. this. Why do they? I don't Well, care. except I think traditionalists. But I mean, for people who don't know, someone just holds a digital board on the sideline estimating that there's there's like a minimum of seven extra minutes that the referee has added. Who knows why they added it and if they were counting up stoppage time. And it's and it's entirely up to the ref, yeah. right? Well, and when you're in a one-goal match where you're praying for your team to get an equalizer, I mean, you don't know what time, how much time's left. Like, it... it ugh, ugh. And, and you're just listening for the whistle ugh. while you're having a panic attack, um, you know, to have your dreams David, destroyed. If, if, you want me to, if you want me to actually become a real soccer fan to really we'll to like soccer... That in between World Cups, get this fixed. Yeah, okay, I'm working on it. Then we'll talk. Sarah, I'm going to assume that this is not what you're ranting about, but but if you are, have at it. <laughs> can I just cede my rant to that conversation? I can't top can. that. Can. My rant was going to be about, about uh, <laughs> this is really a rant for one. It's really to just one person who lives in my house. I really like college <laughs> sports, uh, but just, you know, hypothetically, there are some people who really it affects their whole mood for like days when their college sports team loses. And I don't really understand that. You're not playing. You don't still go to that school. Um, Stop, you know, feeling your college sports team quite that much. It's a great game. It's a different game, you know, college football than NFL. Appreciate it for what it is, but maybe less of the personal investment. <laughs> you literally just said you wanted to hate every other team in the world. Yeah, and and, I, and That's pretty intense. <laughs> and I'm going to say, I'm going to stick up for sports fans. I can't. I, when the Pittsburgh Steelers lose, I have 24 hours of being a different human, and my wife will always be <laughs> mad about it. I take it I, personally. So I went to Northwestern and my husband went to Purdue. We are Big Ten rival family. But I find myself rooting for Purdue because otherwise I'm going to have a miserable 24 hours yeah, in this house. Yeah, understood. <laughs> that just means your husband is an effective fan. Okay. So <laughs> I guess So the referee true. has said we have no extra time for the show today. <laughs> to end like that. Um, uh, thank you to Sarah Isger, to Mo Lathy, also to Christy Lopez. Uh, Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexander Applegate. The show is recorded and mixed by Desmond Taylor. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I am David Green. We appreciate you being here and tune in next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 